It's time for our Bible reading, so if you've got your Bible in whatever form, please do open it to Esther chapter 4. We're reading from 4 verse 1 to 5 verse 8. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city. And he cried out with a loud and a bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed, clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai, so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called for Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs who had been appointed to attend her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate, and Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favour and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hathak went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hathak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter, so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come in to the king these thirty days. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this? Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf, and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace, in front of the king's quarters, while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room, opposite the entrance to the palace. When the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favour in his sight, and he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter, and the king said to her, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given you even to the half of my kingdom. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast 
that I have prepared for the king. Then the king said, Bring Haman quickly, so that we may do as Esther has asked. So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared. And as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, What is your wish? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. Then Esther answered, My wish and my request is this. If I have found favour in the sight of the king, and if it please the king to grant my wish and fulfil my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king has said. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Maynard, thank you so much for reading God's word for us. And please do make sure you've got sight of Esther 4 and 5. It is an intriguing narrative. And let's ask for God's help as we begin. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Father God, thank you that you are utterly in control over all things, even kings in their palaces. Help us to uh, learn what that means for us, how to respond rightly to your loving, sovereign control, and help us to see more of Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, it was almost inevitable, wasn't it? England versus Germany. Uh, Anyone looking forward to uh, penalties on Tuesday? Uh, Feeling confident, perhaps? Uh, Maybe not so. Uh, For Gareth Southgate and the England players, uh, it is crunch time, isn't it? Uh, But now just fast forward to the final. Uh, Imagine England get through to there, and there will be just one outcome of the match. Only one winner. Everything rides on that game. Except it doesn't, does it, because it's only football. But perhaps there are times uh, in our life... Sorry, Jono, it is just football here. Perhaps there are times in our life where we feel like we're at a crunch point. Uh, We're wondering what God is up to. Uh, What are we to do? Why has God put me, put us in this situation? And if God's in control over all things, well, does it even matter what I do? Well, here in the book of Esther, we've arrived at crunch time today. Not just a football tournament, though, but life or death for a whole nation remember how chapter 3 ends. Uh, This decree for the complete annihilation of God's people is speeding to every corner of the empire. Uh, Haman and Ahasuerus, they're having a knees-up drinking session to celebrate. Uh, Susa, uh, the capital city, thrown into confusion. And how do God's people respond? Well, Mordecai leads them in mourning. 4 verse 1, when Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city. And he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed with sackcloth. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting. And many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. It's devastating news, isn't it? Literally the worst thing that could happen. And yet, even in this, even at the worst of times, 
there are two truths we're reminded of here. Two truths that shape how we view each day. The way we view our circumstances, the way we view the entire purpose of our lives. And they come in verses 14 and 16 of chapter 4. If you've uh, printed out the outline or you're watching at home, you'll see them there on the outline. God puts us exactly where he wants us so we can give up our lives in service of his people. And now just before we dive in, it's worth a quick word on how we read the Old Testament. We mentioned at the beginning of our series that Esther and Mordecai aren't straight up moral examples from us to learn from. Esther, like the entire Bible, is all about Jesus. It points us to him. And we can only make sense of the implications for us once we've seen how it points us to Jesus. And this uh, stops us moralising. You know, Esther was brave, so we should be brave. No, we can only be brave because Jesus was brave. Because of his bravery in our place as he served us by going to the cross. Only then can we follow his example. So it's a bit like um, an hourglass or an egg timer on its side. Maybe you can see that. Everything in the Old Testament points to or passes through Jesus. His life, death, resurrection, ascension and return. And everything in the New Testament is based on, flows out from who he is and what he's done for us. So we have to go to Jesus before we can go to us. And we'll just need to bear that in mind as we work through Esther 4 and 5 this morning. So with that just tucked away, come with me to 4 verse 14 again, where we learn God puts us exactly where he wants us. God puts us exactly where where he wants us, our first point. And Mordecai is trying to persuade Esther to stand up and be counted. And so he says, who knows whether you've not come to the kingdom for such a time as this? And again, just remember what's at stake. If Haman succeeds, the Jewish people as a whole will be destroyed. And so the story of God's saving work in and through Abraham's descendants will come to an abrupt and bloody end. No fulfilment in Christ, no salvation, no gospel, no Christian church. Nothing less than that is at stake. So how will God rescue his people? Well, it begins, doesn't it, with this toing and froing, did you see, between Esther and Mordecai. And Mordecai can't go into the king's gate. It's uh, like he's not allowed into the houses of parliament because he's not wearing the right clothes. Esther hears about his distress and so sends him some clothes. And he refuses, so Esther sends Hathak to find out what's wrong. And verse 7, what's gone wrong? Everything. It's all gone pear-shaped. It's awful, says Mordecai. Verse 7, Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favour and plead with him on behalf of her people. Do something to help us, Esther. Look, you know the king. See if there's anything you can do. Uh, the message it goes back and Esther basically says, no way. Verse 11. All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law. 
to be put to death except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I've not been called to come into the king these 30 days. It's hardly likely the king's been sleeping alone for the last month. She knows she's out of favour. And add to that the fact you can't just saunter into the king's presence. Apparently he used to have someone with an axe standing there for just such an eventuality. But it doesn't deter Mordecai, does it? Verse 13, Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you've not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. It's a wonderful statement of confidence in God's purposes. God will rescue his people. Esther, look, if you don't step up, then then you'll prove to be outside of God's people and perish, but God won't stand idly by. And Esther, could it be, could it just possibly be, God's put you here for this exact purpose? Someone refers to this as God's providential pivot point. And it's no surprise when we look to Jesus, we see exactly the same thing. God sent Jesus at exactly the right time, Romans 5 verse 8, for the salvation of God's people. Uh, We touched upon it last week, didn't we? Acts chapter 4 verses 27 and 28. Uh, For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Jesus didn't just happen to be in Jerusalem in the mid-30s AD. He was doing what God's power and will had decided beforehand. Even though other people were making real decisions, God ordained things, so Jesus went to the cross. But remember that at hourglass. You see, God is in control over absolutely everything. Even though we can't see it, it's nevertheless true. The author of Esther almost falls over themselves not to mention God in verse 14. And yet he is in control. Later in Acts, in chapter 17, we read Paul saying this, He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. So often we don't choose opportunities, they choose us, or rather God appoints them for us. Obviously we had no choice over where we were born, our nationality, our parents, our upbringing. But even when we choose our career, our spouse, where we live and so on, God is still just as much in control. God is even in control, Jono, over who wins the Euros. God puts his people exactly where he wants them for his purposes. And we'll see in a moment what that purpose is. Uh, But all of this means we've got to be a little careful when talking about vocation or calling. There is a a danger, this kind of thinking, and it can be paralyzing. Has God called me to be an accountant or a uh, full-time stay-at-home mum? 
Has he called me into full-time gospel ministry or not? Is my vocation to be a painter or an actor and so on? Esther 4 says, God has called you to what you're doing right now, assuming it's not sinful. If you're single, God's called you to singleness. Married, well, to marriage. If you're a teacher, well, that is where God has put you for now. Obviously, things may change, and we'll see in chapter 5, we are to engage our brains and we're to take action ourselves. Divine sovereignty doesn't mean there's no human responsibility. God is in control, and so we must act. We're not fatalists. Now, that would lead to inactivity. If what will be will be no matter what I do, then frankly, why do anything? But if God is in control over and through what I do, then we must act. After all, that's exactly what Esther does. Perhaps, like me, you're a little confused by the beginning of chapter 5. I mean, Esther's actually got the king's ear, so why doesn't she just come out and say, look, I'm a Jew. Please, king, don't wipe us all out. Please, please don't kill me. Is it that she bottles it? I mean, why doesn't she strike while the iron's hot? The king seems to be willing to give her whatever she wants. Well, actually, she's being very canny. She knows the king might say no, so she plays him. I've not done uh, much fishing, but I think it's right. You've got to be careful in reeling in a fish once you've got it hooked. Obviously, the first thing is to get the fish to take the bait, to kind of bite on the lure, and uh, you've got to hook it. But then you've got to reel it in. Go too fast, you might lose the fish. I think it's called playing the fish. It is precisely what Esther does here. In verses 3 to 8 of chapter uh, 5, Esther's playing Ahasuerus as she reels him in. It's masterful. God is in control, but Esther has a plan. Uh, She wins the king's favour, but rather than a direct approach, she invites him and Haman to a banquet. The king said to her, verse 3, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given you, even to the half of my kingdom. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I've prepared for the king. She butters the king up. Then at the first banquet, she gives an invitation to another banquet. So by the time Ahasuerus agrees to come to the second banquet, he's actually agreed to do whatever Esther asks even before he knows what it is. Did you spot that? Verse 6, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, what is your wish? It shall be granted you. What is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. Then Esther answered, my wish and my request is, if I found favor in the sight of my king, if it pleased the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I'll prepare for them. And tomorrow I will do as the king has said. Esther's moved from being just that sex symbol, as far as King Ahasuerus was concerned, to a shrewd saint. God's control over all things doesn't mean we don't also think and plan and make real decisions. Even though God's plan was for Jesus to die on the cross, Jesus also set his face to Jerusalem. God puts us exactly where he wants us. But it doesn't mean we don't make decisions. In fact, as we're about to see, God puts us in particular situations for a reason. 
Uh, God's given us the neighbours we've got, the colleagues, uh, the friendship group we enjoy for a reason. Who knows whether you've not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. And we learn that reason in our second point this morning. God puts us exactly where he wants us so we can give up our lives in service of his people. And this is uh, highlighted most clearly in 4 verse 16 when Esther says, and if I perish, I perish. What a change. Esther's beginning to grow, isn't she? She was entirely absent in chapter 3. We haven't heard her speak at all so far in the book. But now she begins to move centre stage. And really she, she steps up to the plate, doesn't she, in verse 16. The first time we hear her speak, Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, go gather all the Jews to be found in Caesar and hold a fast on my behalf and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Really, 4 verse 14, 5 verse 2, they're one of the key turning points in the book. And suddenly roles are beginning to be reversed. Esther tells Mordecai what to do. And by verse 5, the king is obeying the word of Esther. But the heart of it is verse 16. Esther tells Mordecai to get the Jews fasting and presumably praying. And she agrees to go to the king, even though it's against the law. And if she dies, she dies. And she delivers, doesn't she? 5 verse 1, on the third day, Esther put on her royal robe, stood in the inner court of the king's palace, in front of the king's quarters, while the king was sitting on his royal throne, inside the throne room, opposite the entrance to the palace. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favour in his sight. And he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. Must have been terrifying for her. We know what's going to happen, don't we? We we have some familiarity with the book. She's got no idea. In fact, her best bet is she'll get killed or maybe ditched just like Vashti. Famished, she's been fasting for three days. Scared, She, she puts her neck on the line as she comes before the king over this vast empire but better to serve God even if I fail than fail to serve God and again doesn't it point us to Jesus Esther goes forward not knowing if she'll die Jesus went forward knowing he definitely would Tim Keller describes Jesus as the true and better Esther who didn't just risk leaving an earthly palace but lost the ultimate and heavenly one who didn't just risk his life, but gave his life to save his people. Jesus didn't just say, if I perish, I perish, but when I perish, I perish for them. Mark 14, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Jesus put his Father's will above his own and submitted to the cross. And having been saved by him, we're called to follow him. Mark 8. Calling the crowd to him with his disciples, Jesus said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels 
will save it. In fact, the New Testament, as you read through it, it rings out with the truth. The Christian life is one of self-sacrifice. 1 John 3.16, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. John uh, John 13.34, a new commandment I give to you, that you're to love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. John 15, 13, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. It's not always easy, is it? To, to live above with saints above, or oh, that will be the glory. To live below with saints, we know. That's quite a different story. But have we realized the Christian life isn't just about being served by Jesus? Fundamentally, of course, that is central and foundational. We never move on from that. But then we serve Jesus by self-sacrificially loving and serving his people. Uh, The more we grow in confidence that God is in control, the more we trust him, the more we'll be able to say with Esther, if I perish, I perish. God's people back then were the Jewish people. Uh, God's people today are all those trusting in Jesus and those who will. We serve Jesus by serving his people, those already trusting in him, those yet to put their trust in him, but having been appointed to eternal life. God has put us exactly where he wants us. But he's also given us a brain, so it may be that we can serve Jesus and the gospel better by being a street sweeper rather than a lawyer, or vice versa. Maybe it makes sense to change jobs. Maybe we can serve the Lord better, uh, living somewhere different, perhaps, perhaps not. But let's not tie ourselves up in knots trying to work out what is God's uh, plan for my life. He's already told us it's to unite all things under Christ. And so in whatever situation we find ourselves in in life, as long as it's not sinful, we get on serving the Lord as we serve his people. God's ordained it, so we're exactly where we are to live for, speak of, and serve Jesus by sacrificially serving his people. Uh, Reflecting on those verses I mentioned earlier in Acts 17, uh, Rico Tice, the evangelist at All Souls, says, uh, this truth that God puts us exactly where he wants us transforms how I view my life. It makes it exhilarating. If I'm sitting on a plane and there's someone next to me, God has put them there. He's not far from them because I know Jesus and I'm sitting next to this person. That transforms whether I'll bother to try to start a conversation with them. It'll transform what I aim to talk about. And it'll transform how I pray for my days ahead. I'll be praying for energy and love to make the most of every divine appointment God has already written into my schedule. We need to believe God is in charge of which desk we sit at. We need to believe God has put particular persons around us because he wants them to hear about his son. We need to grasp God's sovereignty and align our days with his mission. It could just be you're, you're listening in this morning here in the building or perhaps online and you're not yet a Christian. Well, have we realized God is so in control. He's in control of us hearing this talk. Uh, So we can find out about Jesus. We can hear of his death in our place. So we might have eternal life. But we still need to respond. And we need to act. uh, To repent, to trust and obey Jesus. 
And for those already following Jesus, well, Esther 4 and 5 mean God's in charge of COVID. He's in charge over the last year or 18 months, all so that we can self-sacrificially serve his people. So we can help people come to know Jesus and know him better and better. As the culture turns more and more away from uh, biblical Christianity, God is in control. And he's working it all out, putting us in situations where we can willingly, joyfully put our neck on the line for the sake of Jesus and his people. It is a mark of genuine faith, genuine Christianity. If following Jesus costs us nothing, how do we know it's real? Taking up our cross, following Jesus, yet not my will but yours be done, is always what true Christianity looks like. Uh, Maybe it'll mean siding with another Christian at work or in a friendship group who's getting stick for their views on the Bible. Perhaps it'll mean self-sacrificially loving a brother or sister in Christ by uh, making the meals, doing prep for a Bible study, uh, putting in the time in prayer so we can serve them better. Or I can think of folk who willingly turned down promotions at work and the money that came with it. Also, they could have enough time to be able to serve in the church youth group. I can think of someone who gave up the comfort of living in the UK so they could move to Afghanistan and reach out with the good news of Jesus. Daily facing the very real prospect of death. If I perish, I perish. And perhaps for us it might mean saying no to things, even good things, things we'd like to do so we can be here physically each Sunday and serve one another. I think it's going to be especially vital after a year of YouTube and Zoom. Could it be that God has put us in our office so we can speak up for Jesus, even when it means being ostracised? What about going on a, a cheaper holiday so we have more to give to the work of the gospel, both building up believers and reaching out to unbelievers with the good news of Jesus Christ? Uh, the more you think about it, the more the possibilities really are endless. God has put us in whatever situation we find ourselves in, all so we might self-sacrificially serve his people. Psalm 77 verse 19, I'm not sure I've really seen this before this week. It says of God, your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. Isn't that great? Of God, your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. Feels very much like what Esther is saying as a book, what chapters four and five are saying. God leads his people through the waters, often a picture in the Bible of death. He leads us, and yet his footprints are unseen. He did it at the Exodus. He does it here in Esther. He did it supremely at the cross. And he still does it today. He leads his people. He puts us in situations, even tough ones, so we might self-sacrificially serve his good purposes. Let's pray it would be true of each one of us in the days, weeks, years ahead that we would remember this lesson from Esther and supremely look to Jesus. Let's pray. Who knows whether you've not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. And Esther said, if I perish, I perish. Lord God, thank you for how clearly this points us to Jesus, how it shines a light on the cross. 
thank you that he was willing to perish that we ultimately might not. Thank you that he set his face to the cross. Thank you that it was appointed for him to die and so win our salvation. As those who have been rescued by him, please help us uh, to be like Esther. Please help us to look to Jesus and follow his example, recognizing you've put us in every situation for the sake of the gospel. We ask it in Jesus' name and for your glory. Amen.